Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. Nigel Farage is back in the news once again with his new campaign for a referendum on net zero. What does he want? What drives him? Will he ever go away? All these questions and more are explored in one party after another, an extensive new biography by my guest today. He was a founding member of the Channel 4 news team, then worked for the BBC for 20 years, mostly on Newsnight, before returning to Channel 4. He's now concentrating on writing. His previous biography subjects include Geoffrey Archer, Michael Heseltine and Alex Ferguson. Michael Crick, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. What do you think Farage is up to with net zero? Is this some sort of deeply held principle or, or is he just looking for a new Brexit so that he's, you know, can get some attention again? Well, a bit of all, a bit of all of those things, really. I mean, he has long been pretty sceptical about climate change. I mean, Farage is an environmentalist when it comes to sort of animals or fish or trees, yeah. that, uh, a big environmentalist on those things. But on the issue of carbon, he isn't. But I do think there's an element of Farage that he craves the, not an element, a very strong f- factor in his character, that he craves the limelight. And if you have sort of made history in the way that he has, and if you have been at the centre of events in the way that he was, I mean, there was a period of about four years mm. where he was a key player in trying to get Brexit through. This is, I'm talking about four or five years ago. He was a big fish in the European Parliament. He led the international grouping of UKIP. He was on the front row. He used to sit next next to the president of the European Commission, get all the big briefings. And he was a regular visitor to the White House in Washington and his mate Trump. And I think since Brexit occurred, he's been at a bit of a loose end in a way. He's done lots of broadcasting. And he's desperate to know how many hits he gets each day, uh, you know, on his uh, from his YouTube stuff and his Twitter tweets and everything. And, uh, you know, it is like a drug. Uh, yeah. Hits is the right word. He is desperate, really, to play a role in politics. But he knows he will never get elected to anything. The European Parliament's gone. Mm. Uh, he could only get elected to that because of proportional representation brought in by the Labour government. He'll never get elected to Westminster. And I think, yes, he does hope to recreate the success of the referendum campaign. I mean, the great irony, though, is that Nigel Farage didn't actually believe in holding a referendum as a route towards Brexit. His view was that UKIP should get members of parliament elected and that they would join up with other Eurosceptics, mainly in the Conservatives, but also in Labour uh, and the odd Liberal Democrat, and that eventually a majority would be in the House of Commons to vote for us to leave. I mean, looking at it now, that seems absolutely crazy. That would never happen in a million years. But that's what Farage believed in. And indeed, when a former UKIP MEP Nikki Sinclair, back in 2011, did a national petition to get 100,000 signatures and a debate in the Commons on the idea of a referendum and yes, no referendum on leaving Europe. Farage ignored it. He told people not to sign it. And he was only shamed into signing it on television, on College Green outside Westminster on the day of the Commons debate. But once the referendum did become government policy, conservative policy, and was initiated... Uh, I mean, Farage obviously played a key role in that. And I think also the pressure from UKIP in those years on the Conservatives to concede the referendum was crucial. And I think that Farage is, on balance, the most important politician so far of yeah. this century. Yes, we will be discussing discussing that. Obviously, recently uh, in the news, you know, the news has been dominated by the invasion of Ukraine. You know, you um, point out in the book that he blamed the EU back in 2014. Well, he still does. Well, um, are you surprised that because this is a very unpopular position and given all the talk of Russia connections with, you know, Aaron Banks and Brexit, you know, the Brexit camp. Are you surprised that it seems like a misjudgment to me? I don't know what the audience is for. 
Well, I, 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 it was a misjudgment on his part, and I think he realizes that. And he did say that, you know, we shouldn't have poked the bear, the Russian bear with a stick and accused the EU and NATO of doing that mm. and of expanding too far eastwards. But he's actually kept quite quiet about that in the last 10 days and concentrated on other things. The whole energy issue and net zero is is deeply related to the Ukraine, because if we no longer get our energy supplies from uh, Russia and the price goes up, is net zero still affordable? Um, so I think actually he's on quite strong ground on the net zero thing, uh, although Recent polls suggest there's overwhelming public support for the net zero target, but that may not change. And of course, you know, 20 years ago, the EU was pretty popular. You know, if you did a poll of the public, uh, people were in favour of the EU. I wouldn't write off the idea of this net zero referendum happening. I think it's unlikely, but I wouldn't write it off simply because... Things do change, and they change in the modern world. They change very rapidly. I mean, you have history as a journalist with Farage. You know, encounter him at various times, and and the thing with his charm is it's both demonstrably effective on certain people, and yet incomprehensible to people who don't like him. Like, what is for those, including I'm sure quite a few listeners who don't get it, what is the secret to this sort of personal charisma? Well, I mean, he's like a lot of actually high achievers. Uh, you know, I've written about others who are in this category, what I call charming monsters. Mm. So that when they're charming, they really are ultra charming. And when they're nasty, they're very nasty. You know, they could, right. they're ruthless and unpleasant. And I put Alex Ferguson into that category as well, for example, or Jeffrey Archer. In Farage's case, uh, he is very engaging. He is great company. One of the things about him is he, he has this great ability to laugh at himself. Uh, and I do think that is a very positive quality. I think human beings love people who can laugh at themselves, who don't take themselves too seriously. Uh, he's a man who will admit his own frailties, his own faults. And he does love engaging with people. He loves debate. His producers, when he was at LBC, the radio station, and he was the presenter uh, every night, would say he hated it really when uh, listeners rang in and said, oh, Nigel, I think you're marvellous. I, you know, I think you're wonderful. Thanks for Brexit and so on. He wanted a proper debate on air. He wanted right. somebody to argue with him. Um, and I think that's a, a positive quality. He enjoys life. He loves his food and his drink famously. You know, he loves he loves a good meal at Boysdale in Victoria or, you know, lots of the top class restaurants in Strasbourg and Brussels when he was there. Lots of wine, um, lots of beer. I mean, he, he can control his drinking. He's not like his father, who was a serious alcoholic. You know, Farage can actually go for long periods without drinking uh, and has, uh, you know, his weight's gone up and down a bit. And of course, um, you know, he has, um, how should we put it, an act, a fairly, has had over the years a pretty active sex life as well. That, that uh, was, uh, uh, yeah, I learned a little too much about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, in, in terms of the book, I've only really dealt with that where it was relevant to the yeah. story. And it was relevant to the mm. story. I mean, at one point, you know, there were three of his lovers, including his wife, who were on the on, on the European, you know, the UKIP parliamentary payroll within the European Parliament. Uh, UKIP having announced a policy some years earlier that they weren't going to em- employ any spouses. Uh, they were going to be, you know, principled and all of that, unlike the other parties mm. in the Europe. And Farage broke the rule uh, almost straight away. And, and he does choose, he has chosen um, people who are, uh, you know, as advisor, women advisors close to him who have turned out, you know, wanted to have turned out to be his lovers. It's a way of disguising, to a degree anyway, the relationship to the outside world. Although, of course, everybody in UKIP knows. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you didn't struggle to find people willing to talk about him, especially in unflattering terms. There's an amazing Neil Hamilton 
quote, where he calls him a sociopathic narcissist <laughs> with a messiah complex. And I, I suppose I was following it at the time, but when you see it written down all in one place, you realise he fell out with every major figure in, in UKIP. And the reason he was his most successful leader was possibly because he was the only one who, who didn't have Nigel Farage undermining him. <laughs> And it's something that actually is sort of, if you go back to the old sort of um, Life of Brian joke, people think, oh, this is what the left does. This is what the far left does. Always factions and fighting and stuff. Is that a particularly fractious area of politics, these UKIP people? Or or is it really down to, to him, his ego or his mismanagement? And there's a parallel universe version of UKIP, which was quite functional. Well, I think I think it is a, a fractious area of politics. I think as you get to more to the the edges of politics, these, that is what happens because for for these people, you know, very minor points are very very important. Although actually, in the case of UKIP, these differences really weren't about policy; it was personality. And Farage undermined two or three leaders before him, um, then became leader himself for three years. wasn't particularly successful decided he was going to fight a parliamentary seat and, and stood down from the leadership for a year. Then he came back. And it was his second term, unusually, that was much more successful. Mm. Um, and um, But he was terrified, really, of rivals. Neil Hamilton was a good example. He encouraged Neil Hamilton to get involved. Really, he wanted Christine Hamilton, Neil Hamilton's wife, to get involved. But he had to get both of them. And he was trying to persuade them to you know, stand for the European Parliament or stand for Westminster. And then Neil Hamilton did get involved, although Christine didn't, and started topping the poll in the membership elections. And Farage started getting worried. And he also realised, I think, that this was not going to look good to the outside world, that the man who'd been involved in, um, you know, the whole Harrods story, mm. brown envelopes and so on, uh, was not going to look good for, for UKIP. So he basically blocked Hamilton's advance. And this was a running battle that went on for years and years. But there were there were loads of other ones. I mean, Suzanne Evans, who was, I thought, uh, you know, a, a very good broadcaster. She was pretty much purged by Farage and, and on trumped up charges. It, you can understand why Farage is an admirer of Vladimir Putin. Uh, he does employ many of the same methods and, and has slaps down on the slightest sign of dissent, which is actually not very good news for your party in the long term, because it means you haven't got any decent successors. You know, as Stalin found with once he uh, murdered all his generals, he hadn't got anybody yeah. to fight the war. And I'm not saying, by the way, that Stalin, that uh, Farage um, <laughs> employ, uh, bumps his opponents off in the way that Putin does, but there have been a lot of casualties. Um, along the way, and um, and we've mentioned three of them already. So, uh, and and it's part of the reason why UKIP fell into rapid decline uh, once Farage resigned. Although very difficult to pinpoint his resi- resignation because he resigned three or four times um, and kept coming back. It's it's a complicated timeline. <laughs> yes. Well, another of the legion of disgruntled former UKIP MEPs, Godfrey Bloom. Um, claims that the the plane crash that Farage experienced in 2010 sort of made him harder and more ruthless and that it sort of changed him for the worse. How do you think it it changed him? Because that was a kind of near-death experience. It was. I mean, he came really within about six inches of death. I mean, he was hanging above the ground. And, if, you know, if his head had hit the ground instead of ended up six inches above the ground, he would have almost certainly died. And... You know, Brexit probably wouldn't have happened. Um, the other interesting development would have been that John Burko uh, probably would have ended his career as Speaker as well because he was the elected MP for Buckingham. Mm. So Buckingham would have, they would have had to scrap that election and rerun it a few weeks later. And in the meantime, the House of Commons would have had to elect a Speaker. And uh, I think the Conservatives would have decided they weren't going to re-elect um, 
Burko, and so they would have had another speaker. So all the stuff about him wouldn't have happened. But uh, more seriously, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think Godfrey Bloom has a point there. I think there was a more ruthless side to Farage, but you could turn it round and say, actually, was it a more focused side? Godfrey Bloom's argument is that the you know the friendly, cheerful, you know, life loving Farage disappeared. He became much more bad tempered and and grumpy. And of course, he was feeling back and neck pain for a lot of that time, Mm. all of it really, regularly. And that uh, made him more grumpy and didn't make any of us grumpy, I think. So uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But, you know, after the plane crash, uh, those were UKIP's great years. That period, 2010 to 2015, is where they really took off in terms of votes. And the the Conservatives were so terrified of him that they were prepared to break election rules all over the place. And this is well documented now and accepted mm. by the Electoral Commission. I did a lot of work on, on this and, you know, broke the expenses laws in lots of by-elections. And then in a big way in, in South Thanet, and uh, a Conservative official was, a, uh, was convicted of that because they were terrified of Farage and they were terrified uh, of him getting into the House of Commons. And that also partly explain why they conceded the referendum. Although, of course, there was a lot of discontent also on their own back benches. But that was that was partly the pressure from UKIP too. And um, so, and I think Farage is at the centre of all that. You report him being surprised by UKIP's success in the 2013 elections. And yet, by December 2019, he seems utterly deluded about the Brexit Party's chances. Yeah. Like, what happened? Did, did it all go to his head? I mean, on, the, on referendum day in 2016, he was, he was you know, he can get very, very gloomy. You don't mm. see this. But in uh, privately, he can get incredibly gloomy. I mean, a man who's lost seven parliamentary elections it's perhaps understandable and he didn't think on he thought they'd lost on brexit on referendum day and indeed he went on television famously uh well he was quoted on television famously uh a few minutes before or was it a few minutes a few minutes after the polls closed saying as such uh and was proved to be wrong in 2019 they did overplay their hand in 2019 here the brexit party in 2019 had had got uh, 29 euro MPs more than any other party in the European Parliament more and not just in Britain but mm. from any of the other countries as well uh, and the conservatives were reduced to 9% i mean it was absolute humiliation for the conservatives but of course they'd done it before they'd done they'd had success in european elections but and every time they managed to terrify the conservatives and some you know the conservatives should have relaxed a bit more and thought Actually, uh, it's one thing to do well in the European elections where there's always a bit of a protest vote, but we'll get we'll get nearly all that vote back at the general election. And then what happened was there was an elected by-election in Peterborough. And everybody says, if the Brexit party are ever going to win a by-election, Peterborough is a wonderful place to do mm. it. And they failed. And you could tell then that actually uh, the, the win was, had been, you know, left their sails. And uh, so it meant that that, that that autumn, Farage was going around making threats that, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll stop the Conservatives getting a majority. But Boris Johnson did actually hold his nerve on that. And Farage, in the end, had to agree he wasn't going to stand in Conservative seats and he would stand in Labour ones. And Boris Johnson ended up with a majority of 80 uh, anyway. But frankly, uh, I don't think the Brexit party would have won a seat anywhere in 2019, mm. uh, no matter what had happened, unless the Conservatives had, had agreed to stand down in one or two places. And it did very nearly happen in Hartlepool, where the local party officials, Conservative officials, didn't want to field a candidate. And they even <laughs> went to the lengths 
of the, the party, one party official who had the, the, the their candidate's nomination papers, Tory candidate's nomination papers, went off on holiday. Oh, dear, I forgot it. I forgot to submit them. I've left oh, them yeah. in the back of my car at Manchester Airport. Uh, but <laughs> central office intervened and insisted they had to find a new candidate. <laughs> and then it only happened at the very last minute. Well, going back to the referendum, you, you, you've quote people like Dominic Cummings who think the Farage shrank the Leave vote by sort of repelling uh, yeah. certain voters. And then others say, actually, you know, his more aggressive messaging reached people that vote Leave couldn't. So essentially you had these two campaigns, you know, reaching yes. different people. Yeah. Um, and you point that phrase take back control was being used by him long before yes. Cummings used it. When you're presenting this question, are you just being even handed or are you genuinely unsure whether he enhanced or reduced the the, the Well, I thought, I thought in the book, actually, I, I took the view that he that uh, having two campaigns turned out to be rather good for the Brexit cause. Dominic Cummings disagrees. He thinks that hmm. if they just had one campaign, then they would have got six percent more. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether he means the margin would have been six percent greater or. 12% greater. But anyway, right. it would have been significantly more. I disagree. I think that having two campaigns, one, one as you say, the aggressive one, the Leave EU one, run by uh, Farage and Aaron Banks, essentially, uh, with lots of money, and they focused on immigration uh, more than Vote Leave, although Vote Leave focused on it quite mm-hmm. a lot as well. But what Vote Leave meant, you had Vote Leave with seven cabinet ministers and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and so on meant that Brexiteers could think, well, I don't like, you know, people were wavering. People were attracted by Brexit. But then they think, oh, gosh, but Nigel Farage wants Brexit. Mm. Can't possibly vote for them. The fact that that it was divided into these two camps, they could feel, well, actually, I'm voting for the the official vote leave form of Brexit. I think it did help them, Mm. the Brexit cause as a whole, attract waverers in a way that if there'd been only one campaign, or if there'd been a campaign that was run by, by Nigel Farage, which might have happened, uh, I think it, it, it probably made the difference, actually, because after all, the margin was only, you know, 50, 52 to 48. Well, here's one thing that, that, that bothers me, is that Farage claims, and quite proudly, that he sort of defeated the far right in Britain by taking votes, by which he means the BNP. Yeah. Yet, you know, it, we're just looking at what he's done in recent years. You know, he talks about globalists and Judeo-Christian values, sits down with Steve Bannon and Alex Jones. Uh, in the European Parliament, he forged alliances with far-right parties. So what I wonder is, does he have an old-fashioned view of the far-right, like it's just skinheads, in the same way that Corbyn sort of has this old-fashioned view of anti-Semites are just basically Nazis? Or does Farage know full well that he has been very close to the modern far right, the alt right, but in Europe, not even alt, just far. And he's just being disingenuous and just trying to sort of, as a cover story, go, ah, but you know, I beat the BNP. He has been pretty opportunistic on this uh, over the years. I mean, he did play an important role, I think, in in thwarting the BNP, which in in, in the first spell of Farage's leadership, 2006 to 9, the BNP were hammering UKIP under their new youthful leader, Nick Griffin, who everybody thinks, well, you know, terrible man today. But actually, Nick Griffin was a much more presentable person compared with the previous <laughs> leaders, low bar, of, yeah. leaders of the BNP. But in 2009, I mean, the great irony is that, that Farage then hammered them in the European elections because all the people were horrified by the MP's expenses story, which erupted a few, month, few weeks before the 2009 election, voted for UKIP. 
And that meant that UKIP then beat the BNP, even though the UKIP were the biggest expense fiddlers of all when it came to the European Parliament. But Farage was, was, you know, he did link up with some pretty unsavoury people within the European Parliament. And he, he would argue, well, for the Conservatives from time to time do that. And just because you link, you know, these these groupings in the European tar- Parliament, they're a sort of technical thing in order to make sure you get the money and you get the committees, places and so on. But on the other hand, he refused for many, many years ever to have anything to do with the Le Pen family, Jean-Marie, the, uh, you know, the leader of the, the traditional leader of the Front National and then his daughter, Marine. Although more recently he is... You know, he backed, he backed Marine in the last uh, election. So he's all over the place uh, on this. And there were some pretty nasty, you know, anti, anti-Semitic types as well from Poland. And, mm. uh, people who, and people have gone to jail for racist offences. So, you know, I think that is part of the, the charge sheet. Uh, and, it, and as you say, he did mix with fervently nationalistic times. I mean, Steve Bannon was trying to create a movement of nationalists around the world mm. that would include Bolsonaro, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, uh, Sisi in, in uh, Egypt. And he was, he, was having, he was talking in America. It was much more strident and right-wing when he went to America right. than here. But that was a period in Farage's life. And I think he's, he's sort of moderated a bit now. Uh, on that and uh, seeing less of those people and seeing less of he doesn't really see Aaron Banks. I mean, Aaron Banks was a much more a lot of the people around Farage in that period of sort of roughly 2014 to 2018 were strident, nationalistic, possibly racist. Well, Raheem Kassam was very right wing. Exactly. Uh, And um, he he's no longer with them. I think when he formed the Brexit Party, I think he realized he had to get rid of a lot of those people. Uh, and it needed to be much more centrist. And he's pretty much actually, I don't think he's gone back to that right. to the, that right wing, those really right wing days that, that where he had, apart from, of course, his association with Trump. And he's still a fervent fan of Trump and wants him to stand again. And no doubt Trump will stand again. And no doubt Farage will go out and campaign for Trump. Although he has said, he did say the other day, he thought that uh, the, the Repub- Trump supporters and Republicans had to stop talking about the stolen election. It wasn't doing them any good. And, and Farage has never really <laughs> adopted that no. stolen election line. I mean, his big activity now, of course, is he's a presenter on GB News, this right-wing mm. channel which doesn't have a huge audience. And it's in a way, it's it's wonderful that Far- for, from Farage's point of view that he ha- he now has this platform four nights a week and Sunday mornings for an hour, four nights a week. Mm. And he is a good broadcaster, in my view. What it's meant is that other broadcasters don't have him on anything like as much as they, oh, they yeah, would have yeah. done because, you know, they, they don't really want to promote a rival. And it may well be that his GB News contract restricts him as well. Uh, so he's not appearing on the BBC or Channel 4 News or whatever as frequently as he did in the past. So it's sort of constraining in a way. Did he really believe that he might get the job as ambassador to America during the Trump years? Because I thought that was a joke. But it seemed almost like he thought, well, it might happen. Well, I think he probably did think it might happen. And of course, he then able, was able to use it as an example of, you know, once again, picked on by, you know, discriminated against by the British establishment. and They hate me and all of that. And the Foreign Office won't even talk to me after I've been to see Trump. They're not interested in hearing what Trump had to tell me. Um, and so he was able to use it. To, but know, he hates this. He sets yeah. himself up against establishment. But obviously, he craves that recognition. Exactly. If you're a real outsider, the... you don't want to be an ambassador. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's one of the great contradictions of, of, of Farage throughout his life. He was the great rebel at Dulwich College. And yet he was the most smartly dressed of all the boys. 
Uh, and uh, he, nobody goes to more Dulwich College events, old boys events, I don't yeah. think. The, nowadays, the, even when he was, you know, really busy as a UKIP leader, he'd be regularly going along to school events. And the schools always quite embarrassed by this. You know, but he, he belongs to gentlemen's, goes to gentlemen's clubs. He, You know, he's annoyed he's not been offered a knighthood or a peerage. Um, and yet, <laughs> you know, what are you? Are you are, are you yeah, the yeah. outsider who represents the common man, or are you, or, or are you desperate to join uh, the establishment? I mean, it has to be said, you know, Farage is not the only person guilty of of that. But um, that's that's one of the great uh, joys of being a biographer is, is all the contradictions that we all have in our character. Finally, you make the case. And, and I think it does hold up. Yeah, he's, he's one of, if not the most influential politician, you know, of, of recent years. No, I'd and say he's the. You say he, I'm, I, yes, I'm, I'm moderating, but yes, yeah, you yeah. say he is the. But he got what he wanted, though. I mean, as in he achieved. He is, someone like you, who is not a kind of, you know, ardent admirer, will say something like that, you know, with, with the biographer's sort of objectivity. Why can't he take that win? Like, why does he seem so well, because, frustrated? Well, because of the drug. He loves, you know, he loves the limelight. He loves performing. He loves radio. He loves telly. He loves speaking. Right. And he's good at all of those things in a way that most politicians can't do the range, including Boris Johnson can't do the range. Uh, and he's only 57. I mean, he may look 67, <laughs> but he's only 50, 58 in April. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got another 30 years of his of his brain working properly, probably yeah. 25, 30 years to go. He's got to fill it. Um, and he must, I think if you have, if you have done that, uh, you must find it frustrating. I mean, some people can retire and, you know, give it all up. Uh, and indeed, in my view, far too many politicians retire too early these days. But in Farage's case, if you have, you know, you if you are addicted, which I think he is addicted, to public attention, you know, I mean, he'd be uh, uh, and, and constantly hassling his age, you know, to get me, get me more hits, you know, who's all of that. You know, Farage would rarely turn down an interview in my days as a uh, when I was working for mainstream television, uh, which is great from my point of view. You know, he could try and go off and just make lots of money or just go and live in the south of France or or somewhere. But uh, no, he wants he wants to remain in the line. He's never going to get elected to anything because the other parties will gang up against him if it came to Westminster yeah. elections and, and there are no longer the European elections. But he can remain, I think, uh, an influence, a strong campaigner and performer and commentator. And that's what I think he'll be, barring an accident. He is going to be around for, for, for quite a while. Right, well, brace yourselves, everyone. He's not going anywhere. Thanks so much for joining me, Michael Quick. Thank you. Uh, one Party After Another, The Disruptive Life of Nigel Farage is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. You could also consider backing The Bunker on Patreon. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.